We'd allow the advancing Warsaw Pact Third Shock Army pass over us and then engage them with artillery fire with the long-range guns of the Royal Artillery. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. I speak with Colin Ferguson, a veteran from the British Army's covert Special OP Troop. The stay-behind Special OP Troop consisted of selected soldiers in six-man patrols whose task was to dig in large underground hides known as Mexi shelters along the inner German border. They would then allow the main Soviet forces to pass over them before deploying into two smaller observation posts, OPs, where they would engage the enemy with the long-range guns and rockets of the British Army. Colin covers in detail the selection, training and deployment, as well as how the Mexis were constructed. Do check out Colin's podcast, The Unconventional Soldier, which offers first-hand accounts of past conflicts, military history, book and film reviews, plus guests, dits and digression. Now, this podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our Patreon. So if you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support via a small or large monthly donation. Plus, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, uh, my name's Glenn. I'm from New Zealand. I've always been fascinated by Cold War. This podcast just brings it all back to life and Ian does such a good job of this. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. This episode is dedicated to remembering two members of this special OP troop, Lance Bombardier Steve Cummins, who is pictured on the episode cover, and gunner Miles Amos, who lost their lives in 1989 when their vehicle struck a mine near Londonderry. We thank them for their service. I'm delighted to welcome Colin Ferguson to our Cold War conversation. I was born in Ayrshire in Scotland in the mid-1960s. My mum was a housewife and my dad worked in various factories and different management positions. I had a great childhood, Ian. I wish I could tell you I had a poverty-stricken one that made me join the army, but that certainly wasn't the case. Uh, We were lucky. We emigrated to Tasmania when I was three on the the £10 POM ticket. Um, but unfortunately, we had to return when I was 10 as I was severely allergic to the bite of an ant called a jack jumper. Um, we were down the beach one day and uh, I was playing in the surf and I came out, got bitten by this ant and I had a severe anaphylactic shock. And my mum had gone to get a picnic and uh, so we had no transport. And there's one other couple on the beach and one of these people happened to be a doctor who gave me a, an injection that saved me in time to uh, get to the hospital. So my mum was rather reluctant to stay in Australia and we came back to a rather cold, wet and horrible 1970s Scotland. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the, some of those uh, creatures in Australia, apologies to my Australian <laughs> listeners, but uh, they're a bit scary. My kids used to be very fond of a program called the Deadly 40 or the Deadly 60 and it was all, you know, deadly animals and it, Every week, it seemed to be from Australia. Yeah, everything they can kill you seems to be emigrated down under, doesn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you returned to the UK. How how were you educated? Well, I went through the normal Scottish uh, education system till I was sixteen, and uh, my parents wanted me to stay on. But to be honest, I didn't have any interest in education. I couldn't wait to leave. School really didn't engage me apart from history and English, which I had a passion for and were the only A grades I achieved. I had a fantastic English teacher, a man called Mr. Olofsson, uh, the only teacher who inspired me, and he put me onto P.G. Woodhouse, the Flashman novels and, and the World War I poets, and I have a love of reading that stayed with me all my life, and which is handy because the army, as uh, Churchill once said, is 90% boredom and 10% excitement. So I spent a lot of that 90% with a, a, a book in my rucksack, my Bergen, uh, and I was always reading when we were deployed in operations or in exercise. <laughs> and what made you choose the Army as a career? Well, I left school at 16, as I said, but I, I didn't join the Army immediately. Uh, when I left school, I did two years of a toolmaking apprenticeship, uh, and I was lucky to get a job back then as in the west coast of Scotland, unemployment was running about 16%. So to get a toolmaking apprenticeship was was a good a good thing. But I remember being sat in the bus one day, uh, going into work in the winter, in the rain, on the top deck of a bus, when people could still smoke in a bus, and looking out thinking, I just don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. So I went in that day and uh, jacked in my job that morning. And then I didn't want to go home and tell my dad. So I spent the day walking around town before I could pluck up the courage to go and tell my dad that I jacked in this uh, apprenticeship. I then went and worked in London for two years, doing a variety of jobs, including things like packing records in CBS Warehouse. And then I had one of those other light bulb moments where I decided I needed something better in my life and I couldn't just keep aimlessly wandering around like I was doing. And to be fair, I was always obsessed by all things military, like a lot of 70s kids were back then. And, uh, you know, there was always World War II films, uh, commando comics, regular outings to the pictures of my dad to see films like A Bridge Too Far. So I was a bit an obsessive. So in 1985, I was 20, and I decided to take the plunge and went along to the recruiting office, and I signed up for six years in the Royal Artillery. Uh, and I chose the Royal Artillery for the one reason, and it was the quickest route into the army. Uh, back then, there was 155,000 in the army, and to think now we're going down to about 72,000, and about 50,000 of them were in Germany. But with the high unemployment rate, recruiting wasn't an issue, so depending on the regiment you wanted, you could wait for months to get a place. So I chose the gunners out of expediency. And what, what was the basic training like for the artillery? So... Um, I had to wait about six weeks to get in after all the sort of the prelims and medicals and attending the sort of the army selection centre in um, Edinburgh, which was about two days. And that was just interviews and basic fitness tests. And then once I got through that, I was sent a train warrant for Woolwich where the Royal Artillery Depot was at the time. And I remember we got off the platform, uh, sort of surrounded by guys who looked like me, all a bit nervous and a bit sheepish. And we were met by a very polite bombardier, which is what the artillery calls their corporals. And he was very polite, and he ushered onto the bus very gently, and he drove us to the, we got driven to the barracks. And as soon as we were through the barrack gates, everything changed. This nice, polite bombardier morphed into a shouting lunatic, and everything became very manic. Um, like all armies all over the world, there was lots of... Well, all I can say is bullshit. <laughs> uh, the polishing of boots, the polishing of brasses. If it was shiny, it got polished. 
And I remember my uncle was in the RAF and he did conscription in the 1950s. And he told me about bed blocks. And he also told me about this thing called a bumper, which was a heavy weight on the end of a broomstick that they used to polish floors. They used to wax the floors and use this heavy weight with a bit of blanket to get a real buff on the floor. And he turned around and said to me, but you won't have them anymore. But nevertheless, when we turned up, there it was. This is what you're going to shine the floors with, a big bumper. So nothing to change much from the 1950s. And... Uh, the routine followed that of most armies, early morning inspections, uh, fitness training, lessons on all manner of military subjects from camouflage and concealment to NBC training, nuclear, biological, chemical, weapon handling and first aid. Now, I loved the PT and I loved the weapon handling and I hated drill, absolutely loathed drill with a passion because I'm not very well coordinated. And I'm six foot two, so my coordination was pretty easy to spot and I spent a lot of time uh, running around the square with a rifle above my head to help me improve. Uh, so that was not much fun for me. But no, going out in the ranges, learning to fire weapons, going exercise, digging in trenches and doing, you know, sort of soldiering the field. I absolutely loved. I hated being in camp. Uh, and I remember at one point, sort of four or five weeks in, I'd had enough of it. And I phoned my dad up. And I think he got his own back at this point for me quitting my toolmaking apprenticeship because I said to him, look, Dad, I don't, I'm not enjoying this and I'm thinking of getting out. And he turned around and said to me on the phone, he said, well, where are you going to stay? And I said, I'm coming home. And he goes, well, you're not staying here. It's the army. It was never going to be easy. And he hung up on me. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got my dad to well, think. Tough love. Yeah. Tough love there. <laughs> and looking back on it, Ian, it's what I needed. <laughs> yeah. And, and I did – you know, I always just take the mickey out of my dad that he, he made me do 22 years in the army. <laughs> so basic training lasted about 12 weeks. Uh, and at the end of that, you went into what's called phase two training. And for the Royal Artillery, you're either trained as a signaller or you're trained in gunnery on the 105 light gun or you went on a driving course. And this meant that basically when you turned up at your regiment, you were of some use. And um, I was trained as a signaller. And once all that was done, you had the passing out parade uh, to which your family was invited. I was given two weeks leave and then I was ready to go to my regiment. What regiment were you assigned to? So at the end of training, you were given preferred choices of regiment. You were given three preferred choices in, in, in order of preference. So I asked to go to a gun regiment in Germany. But what I actually got was allocated to an air defence regiment, 12th Air Defence Regiment as a signaler in the regimental command post as part of headquarters battery. Uh, and I was posted to Dortmund, which was a gunner garrison at the time, and there were five artillery regiments in Dortmund, so it was a big garrison. What did you make of Germany? Had you ever been to Germany before? No, I hadn't. I really enjoyed my first year in the regiment, and Germany in the mid-'80s was very different from the UK. Um, I got there in 85, so this was a couple of years after the miners' strike and before Thatcher's reforms of the city, which sort of brought the money into the UK. And it was so obvious that Germany is much more affluent and much nicer, and there's a real contrast between both countries. So we went on leave. The UK appeared a real run-down dump, to be honest. You know, slam-door trains, and it just looked really run-down. So Germany was... Um, a fantastic posting because it was a really nice country. And for a young guy with a bit of money in his pocket, there was cheap beer. Uh, there was all-day drinking. And you remember back in the 80s, the drinking laws in the UK were very restrictive. 
And these laws for younger listeners, they go, went back to the First World War to stop the munitions workers getting drunk. So I think pubs opened from about 11 till 2, shut till about 6, and then shut again at 11. But in Germany, you could drink all day. The only problem there was there was a big drinking culture in Germany. Um, and it's easy to look back with rose-tinted glasses, but I really believe at that time the Germans were getting a bit sick of having the British Army in residence. Uh, and it was quite hard to get into some of the bars in Dortmund that weren't soldier bars. And to be fair to the Germans, a lot of this was down to soldiers' behaviour. And to give you an indication of sort of the drinking culture I was on about, you know, in a regiment of 600 men, you had about five batteries. And each battery had its own bar uh, in, the, in the accommodation. And there was a duty of a Lance Bombardier barman, the duty barman, and that was his job for six months at a time. And in the battery bars, the drink was stupid. So there's a lot of drinking all the time. The the common thing I hear is with most people is Germany was a, a popular posting because of the you know the the lifestyle there. But um, it's interesting what you were saying about the alcohol situation there as well. Yeah, I mean there was not a lot to well there was if you're unimaginative there wasn't a lot to do. But you know Germany and the surrounding countries offered so much, but it's very easy to get down to that vortex of not doing much and staying within a very small uh, circle of opportunity. Um, and you know, I got bored with this eventually, and I was really into my fitness, and I wanted a challenge that involved tougher soldiering. So um, I went down to the battery office, and the battery office was never a place you ventured to lightly because that was where the battery commander, the major in charge of the company, and the battery sergeant major were. Uh, and I asked the battery clerk if I could have uh, information on volunteering for P Company, which is the course you have to go on to serve with the airborne forces. And um, my battery sergeant major heard me talking and he came out and he asked me what I was doing. And he said, why do you want to go there? And I told him, I said, I wanted some challenging soldiering. I wanted to go and work on the conventional uh, OPs that fired the guns in support of the infantry. And he said to me, look, you do realize if you go and pass P Company and you get into uh, 7th RHA, which was the Airborne Regiment of the Gunners, you're unlikely to get on the OPs because you're more likely to go in the gun line first because the OPs are a sought-after job. And he goes, but I know an organization that if you pass their selection course, you'll go in the OPs straight away. And that was the, the then special OP troop. And the instruction that he gave me amounted to about a paragraph. It was, you know, volunteers wanted for an arduous job uh, requiring a selection course. And that was pretty much it. But I know an awful lot to that man. And he was somebody I modeled myself on further down the line because he was a great role model. Once I volunteered, he made sure that I got extra PT training. He, he personally took me out map reading and made sure I got weapon handling training and got all my basic skills up. And that really stood me in good stead for when I turned up for the selection course. It sounds like it. And all credit to him for recognizing your uh, ability and, and offering you that, that opportunity. Yeah, no, he's, a, he's an absolutely outstanding man. Colin, can you tell me what the special OP troop was? 
Yeah, no problem. So the Special P Troop was formed by the then Left Lieutenant Colonel and later Major General Stone in 1982. And its role was intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition and reconnaissance, known in the Army as I-STAR. And the intention was to have a troop of specially selected and highly trained soldiers in six six-man patrols, completely concealed in a main underground hide known as a Mexi shelter, with up to two satellite OPs dug in and deployed right up against the inner German border, the IGB. We're expected to conduct operations unsupported in a single patrol for up to three weeks. And these OPs were, were in addition to the conventional artillery forward observation OP parties, which I described earlier, and they tended to work in conjunction with the infantry on the front line. So what would happen would be we would dig in, we'd allow the advancing enemy to pass over us and then engage them with artillery fire with the long-range guns of the Royal Artillery. And we'd also gather intelligence and report back on Soviet formations. And as this uh, title of your podcast, Ian, we know the enemy was the Warsaw Pact, 3rd Shock Army, and this was expected to cross the Iron Curtain at the outbreak of war and race westwards for the Channel ports. And it consisted of many armoured divisions of mass Russian and East German tanks, and it was a pretty formidable force. In reality, we had little hope of defeating it conventionally. So the aim was to delay this attack as part of the NATO effort for hopefully seven days, so as to allow international negotiations to take place in the hope of reducing the possibility of an all-out nuclear war, and also to allow reinforcements to arrive from America and the UK. And by having these OPs so far forward, it would also enable the guns to deploy much further back, which would in turn help conserve a valuable asset. And the artillery to be used, the weapon of choice, if you like, was the M107 self-repelled gun. And a depth fire regiment at that time, of which there were two, consisted four batteries of six of these guns. And they had a 40-kilometer range firing a 60-kilogram in weight round. And the intention was to engage Soviet targets firing all 24 guns together which effectively destroyed a complete grid square of a kilometre by a kilometre. And interestingly, just as the wall came down, these guns were being replaced by the multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, and one um, launcher could almost replicate that 1K by 1K destruction of a target. Um, The concept wasn't new. In World War II, there was a unit called the Auxiliaries, and this consisted of patrols of five to eight men usually as part of the Home Guard, uh, and they were usually landowners and farmers, and they used specially constructed underground operational bases made by the Royal Engineers from which they could conduct harassing operations against the occupying Germans. Thankfully, they never had to prove their mettle. Um, and then in the early 60s, you had the Special Recce Squadron of the Armoured Corps, which operated a similar concept as the Special OP Troop, and they were in formation from 62 to 64, so they didn't last too long. And finally, readers, sorry, readers, we're on a podcast, listeners <laughs> uh, might have heard of the role of 2-1 and 2-3 SES, the core patrol unit at this time. And they also operated at Mexi shelters, but they had a very different concept of ops, and they usually had the Mexi shelters dug in quite far forward on a wood line. And I'll describe how we operate later on, but it's considerably different to 2-1 and 2-3 SES. I really appreciate that. And one of the 
the things that, well, one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is I'd never heard of this unit before and um, was fascinated by, you know, how, how it's, how it deployed and how it operated, which, which we'll go on to in a moment. But can you take me through that selection process? Yes, we're going back to what we said earlier on. There was very little information. And when I came back to the accommodation that night and I said to some of the lads, I'm going on the special OP troop course, uh, has anybody heard about it? And there was much sucking in of teeth and, uh, oh, you don't want to go there. Nobody passes that. You know, it's three years since the last person had got in. And, you know, it's it's, you know, it's, it's like the SES. Um, so, of course, that being the person I am, that just made me more interested and, and, and determined. So when I turned up, sorry, the, the course consisted of an initial seven to 10 day selection. Uh, and they deliberately kept that seven to 10 days vague as you didn't know how long you'd be on the selection process for. And if you passed that initial seven to 10 day selection, it was followed by an 18 week course. Again, this was pass or fail. And they normally ran two to three selection courses a year in order to get enough candidates for the main training course. And the course came about by General Stone and the people setting up the troop. They visited a variety of units uh, from the commando and airborne brigades. And also the initial instructors that set up the course were from 2-2 SES and those commando and airborne brigades. So we're very much influenced by special forces and uh, our airborne and commando brethren. And from inception in 1982 to 1990, our chief instructor on the course was from the Parachute Regiment, and he was seconded to us. And then we're very fortunate in that uh, from 1990 to the early 2000s, the chief instructor was actually a warrant officer from 2-2-SES. And we only lost that attachment because of the war on terror and the sheer pace of operations that Hereford were going through that meant they couldn't supply somebody to help us out. So... The aim of the selection really was to get someone who's determined, fit, most importantly, trainable, and having those attributes of being able to work on their own or on a team and could follow basic instructions. So quite wide, but quite basic. And the focus was on getting you tired by depriving you of sleep. And they started every day with what we used to call a PT beasting. So that was the outline. And, uh, if you want me to go into a bit more detail, you know, I'll actually break it down a bit further for you. The term you've used there sounds a bit scary, but I'm sure we'd like a little bit more detail on that. Okay, then. So um, on my seven to 10 day selection, you, you were told to turn up at the barracks. And I was quite fortunate because it was in 5th Regiment, which was in Dortmund. It was just up the road. But guys came from all over uh, the British Army, the Rhine and Germany. So you turned up, you got processed and you had your kit issue. And uh, there were 16 people there that night. And you're put in an attic room and uh, you slept in a camp cot with your sleeping bag. And you spent it checking your field gear, making sure your, your belt kit and your Bergen was sorted and ready to go. And I was very fortunate because what they also did was they issued you with a series of maps. Uh, so I got to work with scissors and sellotape and fablon and I put all my maps together and fabloned them because that's what the BSM had showed me to do when he trained me before I turned up here. And I was the only person in that room doing that. Uh, and that proved invaluable to me because a lot of them went out in the field later and they're trying to piece maps together in the pouring rain and it didn't really work for them. What is fabloned? Fablon's like a, 
it's like a huge piece of sticky tape that you put over a paper map and it waterproofs it. Oh, okay. So it's like a laminate cover. Yeah, it's just like laminate. Except you don't use a machine, you do it by hand. And believe me, that's a skill in itself. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it sounds like it. <laughs> and if you recall back to when I turned up at basic training, it was all shouting and um, rushing around by the, by the instructors. None of that. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. With these guys, the DS or directing staff were very calm, very matter of fact. You know, when you looked at them, there was no uniformity in their dress. And back in the 80s, the kit we got in the army was not good. And uh, But you're not allowed to deviate from the issued gear. And looking at these guys, they all looked the part. They wore a mixture of um, jungle combat trousers, Arctic windproof smocks. They had their own webbing made up from uh, U.S. ammunition pouches, 44-pattern water bottles or a U.S. water bottle pouch, SES escape ration pouch, that sort of thing. They didn't look the same, but what they did have in common was that they all looked hard, fit, and capable. Um, so we got up early the next day, and that basically started off with PT tests, the basic ones of the Army, like a one-and-a-half-mile run to ensure you're fit, press-ups, sit-ups, that type of thing. Surprisingly, a couple of people failed them at that point, unbelievably. They then stuck us in a Bedford truck, and we had a six-hour truck drive to Hill Design, which was sort of the selection stomping ground uh, for the special OP troop. So when we got off the trucks, we were paired up and uh, were told that our buddy was to be no more than arm's reach away from us for the next seven to ten days. And I was really lucky to be paired up with a brilliant guy called Vinny, and he played a big part of me getting through. But they were quite twisted at, you know, and halfway through, you ended up doing a thing called milling, which is just basically boxing, and, you know, you had to stand toe-to-toe and punch seven bales out of each other. So that was a, a nice trick they played on you. But all this was done from a tactical harbour area, so you're fully tactical at all times. And uh, you did was this PT every morning, to get you tired, and you had to carry out various tasks, things like memory observation exercises, weapon handling, and navigation tests. You're also given a confined spaces test to see that you could cope with being underground in an OP. But you knew this unit was different because they also taught you things. For example, uh, you weren't allowed to go into your sleeping bag for the couple of hours you might have off and zip it up and get to sleep you had to leave it unzipped and drape it over you like a quilt. And that was in case you got hit and bugged out by an, an enemy force. 
And on the last night, we were hit and we were bugged out and we went to an emergency rendezvous point, an ERV, and you were met and briefed by the directing staff. And what they briefed you on was that you're going to spend your next 24 hours in an observation post. Bearing in mind, this was in the middle of a German winter. And we had no idea what we were doing, but we basically lay in this bush and for the next 24 hours, we watched Land Rovers go up and down a road Members of the DS go past in different uniforms with different weapons, and we had to write it all down. And then 24 hours later, you were bugged out again, and you went to another ERV, and you met again with the DS, and you're told, right, get some water down your neck. You're going to do a 10-mile tab, which is a 10-mile forced march. So we did the 10-miler, and at the end of that, there was about five people left out of this 16 or so that turned up. And they said, right, turn about. We're going to go do the 10 miles again in the reverse direction. And at that point, another three gave up. So basically, there was just me and Vinny left at that point. And off we went at speed, two miles down the road, and there was some transport waiting for us. And this is just a, what's called a, a sickener in the army. It was just to test your mental resolve. And after that two miles, we got into the truck and were driven six hours back to Dortmund. We were marched into an office and told we'd passed that initial phase. And then surprisingly, they said to us, right, we'll see you upstairs in the bar for some beers. So I stood in the bar with blistered feet. I chaffed back from my webbing and bergen rubbing on it. My fingers and lips split from the cold. I was absolutely shattered. But at that point, I knew this is where the unit was that I wanted and I had to end up in. Wow. Wow. And as you say, it sounds like you're really lucky to uh, team up with uh, with Vinny there. Yeah, Vinny's a great guy and we still keep in touch. And he was a guest on one of our podcasts recently, so it was really good. Oh, well, I will have to check back to uh, to that episode. So you you pass the, the training. What What's the, the next steps for you? Or you pass the induction? Yeah, basically, yeah, that, that was your first step in the journey, Ian. You know, that, that seven to ten days. And to this day, I can't remember if it was seven or ten. It just, it's just a blur. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you for what you've just described. Whoa. So you were then sent back to your regiment, and uh, you had something like two weeks off, and then you had to report for the next phase, which was 18 weeks long. And a large chunk of that was in the field. And all this was about preparing you to operate in a six-man patrol, operating deep behind enemy lines. And it was concentrating on the three core skills of shoot, move, and communicate. So shoot with a variety of weapons. In this case, it was a silenced uh, Sterling submachine gun, the self-loading rifle, the SLR, which was a standard rifle of the British Army at the time, uh, later the SC-80, and obviously the 9mm pistol. Uh, You had to move over different terrain tactically and know how to navigate accurately. And you also had to communicate from everything with hand signals to technical high-frequency HF radios. And uh, each day started off with PT, and it was broken down into various modules. So, for example, on the comms week, uh, you spent a lot of time studying high-frequency HF comms because we're operating so far forward, it was the only method of communication back to the command post. Uh, You also had to learn Morse code, and by the end of the 18 weeks, you had to be proficient to eight words per minute. And obviously, you spent a lot of time on antenna theory, uh, because with HF comms, 
you need to be able to know what size of antenna to use. And that's all to do with the type of frequency you're on at that time. So it got quite complicated. And you spent an awful lot of time doing Warsaw Pact vehicle recognition because that was the main reason we were there, to recognize these Soviet vehicles, either engage them or pass that intelligence back. So it was very long days, uh, and the little free time you had was spent revising recognition or practicing Morse code in order to get that proficiency. There were some good fun weeks as well. Uh, being out on your own in a patrol so far forward, you had to have good advanced first aid skills. And we're lucky as well that that included a hospital attachment at one of the British military hospitals. The guys went there for a couple of days and got to see things like um, operations. And uh, so you got to see the human body uh, when it's opened up and also how to put in intravenous drips, that sort of thing. You're also taught OP construction because, again, that's the trade you're in. So you're taught uh, both surface, uh, known as a hasty option, which is basically picking the biggest prickliest bush and getting into it and making a hide in there. Uh, But more importantly, the main thing you had to do was know how to construct an underground OP. And I'll cover that construction in a bit more detail later on when we start talking about Mexis. The reason the Hasties were taught was that you had to have the option of a temporary move in order to look at a particularly high-value target. But that was an option of last resort because in a hasty, you could, you're open to being seen by thermal imaging and you're also open to uh, fire from enemy weapons. You always had to try and get underground. So we've, we've been taught recognition and how to locate and how to hide. You then had to be taught how to call in artillery fire. So you spent part of the course learning how to call in artillery. And then, of course, going back to the move, you had to understand small team tactics, how to conduct a variety of patrols, such as recce patrols and fighting patrols, both day and night. You're also taught the use of caches. So you're taught how to hide supplies and rations and dig them in and produce a cache report in order that you could later on find them if you're doing an exfiltration. And uh, I think this is a throwback, really, to having parachute regiment instructors a lot of the time in the OP troop, if you made contact with the enemy, you'd made a bit of a mistake. But our parachute regiment instructors instructors made sure that we knew how to conduct offensive action tasks, such as conducting ambushes. You're also told, taught survival, how to live off the land. And I think really this is more about developing your confidence on how to survive on your own with little equipment, as, uh, as you probably know, Ian. Nuclear war and the use of tactical nuclear weapons wasn't far off in the Cold War. So I think exfiltrating through a nuclear wasteland, it's unlikely you're ever going to catch a rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) So we're also taught how to give orders and complete recce reports, that type of thing. And perhaps the most fun part, we did live field firing with our own weapons and foreign weapons AK-47s, RPKs, and again, this is all practical stuff because if you ran, lost your weapon or you ran out of ammunition, your chances were you might be able to pick up a Soviet weapon and use that. And we had some fantastic time on days and nights spent on the ranges, hours and hours, practicing contact drills, casualty evacuation, and how to break out of OPs aggressively. And of course, to keep you on the toes, at one week, they put a weekend where there was more physical tests, which were again pass or fail. And the majority of this was conducted in the field. 
And uh, a lot of the exercises involve carrying heavy loads over long distances. For example, in the, at the end of the comms week, you went out and did three-day signals exercise, and it was an exercise called radio walk. And that did exactly what it said on the tin. We spent about three days tabbing from checkpoint to checkpoint with a heavy burger on our backs, doing signals tests, setting up antennas, and doing long-range communications. And then finally, you put all this together, and you had a two-week final exercise where you dug in a Mexi and you conducted operations as if you're a patrol operating out a Mexi. And to give you some indication, around seven of us started at the beginning of this 18-week phase, and four of us completed the course. And we were then qualified special observers at the basic level at that point. And there's two of us went to the special OP troops of five regiment and three two regiment because there was a special OP troop in each of the depth fire regiments at that point. And the reg sorry, the battery is still in existence today because in 1989 it became seven three battery and the two troops from those regiments were combined. And after the Cold War, the unit re-rolled to concentrate on dismounted long range reconnaissance and became four seven three Sphinx special OP battery. And it still exists today, and um, it distinguishes itself in operations in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last 15 years. And interestingly, more people failed themselves than were ever failed by the DS in the course I was on. I really appreciate the detail that you've uh, shared there, and I'm sure the uh, the the listeners lo love that that level of detail. Um, I had a, a couple of questions out of that. When when you were practicing the recognition, did the British Army or NATO have Soviet vehicles that they could use? Because I have seen training films with um, various Warsaw Pact vehicles in them. Yeah, the the Americans had. Uh, we used to go on exercise in a place called Grafenwehr, and I remember going down there, and the Americans had quite a lot of Soviet kit, various tanks, BMPs, BRDMs that were in running order, and they used them. But um, we didn't have access to that type of thing. What we got was a load of imagery that had been obtained from, from the Brixmas mission. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you started your recognition training, it was, you know, full shots of vehicles. And then it would be down to things like they'd just show you the top turret with a, a certain antenna or a, a weapon sight on it, or they'd show you the rear wheel, the rear idlers and the tracks and, and, the, and the type of skirt it had along the tank or a tank that was quite obscured by a bush. So it wasn't just a case of a, you know, throwing you like a, a full picture. Yeah. It was, went down to you really had to know your stuff about what type of vehicle it was. Yeah, so if a vehicle had a tarpaulin over it, you you'd need to just be able to identify it from the, as you say, from the wheels or the uh, the tracks. That's right. And the other thing they taught you was, for example, you needed to know if a certain, you know, three types of vehicle turned up, that might indicate a formation or a division that would be coming after it. So you had to know what the recce elements were, that type of thing, the vanguard units, what they looked like. So, uh, you know, you had to look at the uniforms and understand the different uniforms. So the level of detail, you really had to know your stuff. Wow. Well, you must be one of those people that when you watch a, a movie, you get really frustrated by the uh, lack of historical accuracy. 
<laughs> yeah, and my wife's a midwife, so if it's if it's midwifery and, and army combined, we just spend the time slagging the film off. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, Colin, I, I wanted to talk to you or, or ask you some questions about how uh, the special OP troop would have been deployed, and the 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 first question I had was, how was the selection of the Mexi? shelter location chosen and did you actually did you know where you would deploy if the balloon went up yes we did actually um our deployment area was near hildesheim and if you look on the map hildesheim is south of hanover and it faces east generally towards magdeburg which was in the then ddr the german democratic republic now if my memory serves me well uh, Magdeburg was where a lot of the Third Shock Army lead formations were, were based. So that was the reason we were there. And our aim was to get as close to the border as possible. And interestingly, we were training on the ground we would fight on, which was an advantage for us. Uh, you know, and it's not often soldiers get to do that. So our general deployment positions were selected up the chain of command and driven by intelligence and target acquisition requirements. But from there, the actual position was selected by the by the patrol commander, who was a sergeant. And this is quite unusual because unlike conventional forward observation officer parties, there were no officers in our patrols. So it was a lot of responsibility for that sergeant. And the reason there was no officers was basically... We didn't have to liaise with anybody. So an FO and a conventional OP party will have to talk to a company commander or a squadron commander, and he needs that rank to do that. So in effect, you selected three positions. You selected the MEXI and up to two satellite OPs. And the OP numbers depended on the size of the area to be observed. And the MEXI itself was sighted deep in as dense a wood as possible with the OPs forward. So when the patrol commander was doing the recce's, he had to do a map and ground appreciation. But you always had to look at it from the enemy's point of view because there's an old saying in the army that the enemy has a say in what you do. So often an excellent position would not be occupied as it was too obvious. So you might pick the next second or third best one. And once you'd done that, a target information pack would be produced in great detail because your patrol might not get to deploy there. It might be another patrol, and they would be handed that target information pack in order to do that. And what did that target information pack contain? It would contain your area of observation, um, your arcs of observation, so your left of arc, your right of arc, and these would be marked on as bearings. So you'd have the OPs with their observation arcs, and as far as possible, you'd try and get those arcs interlinked, so... Both OPs were interlinked to in what they were doing so that they'd have a greater view over the enemy and an overlapping view. Um, so you'd have that. You'd have the location of the uh, the Mexi hide itself. And most importantly, you know, when you're selecting an OP or a Mexi, there's a number of things you have to think about. You have to think about cover from view, cover from fire, concealed routes in and out, but most importantly, communications. So each of the OP sites, you had to do a comms check uh, to make sure that you could communicate back to the Mexis. Uh, initially with P-51 
PRC-349, which is a short-range radio. And you only use that in extremists because the Soviets had a very good SIGINT capability. And uh, you, you so what you did was you laid telephone, field telephone line to the OP and the MEXI, but you had the 349s as backup. And then, of course, you had to do a comms check on the MEXI using HF radios back a couple hundred kilometers in some cases. So not only had your MEXI had to be in a good, dense bit of forest, you also had to make sure you had comms. So yeah, and and, and that, that was basically, you also have things on that, that target pack would be uh, cache areas, if you'd cached any, any stores or whatever. Uh, so lightly cache areas that would be good for guys as well. Right, right. And how close were you setting up to the inner German border? It varied really. I mean, you could be a couple of hundred meters away to five, 600 meters, but you, literally it was that close. You tried wow. to get as close as possible. That's incredibly close. Um, and were they built well in advance or were you expected to build them at a time of heightened tension? You're expected to build them at a heightened tension. And, and and looking back on it now, I'm I'm not aware of any deception plans or anything like that. Uh, I think there was a bit of finger crossing <laughs> at the time. But yeah, you were meant to build them uh, during the height of tension. And, you know, Mexis were huge. Um, if you can imagine a T-shape with the top of the T being six meters by one meter and the base of the T being three meters by three meters, and they were probably four meters deep. Um, so there are big constructions. And OPs were genuinely like a trench. They're about three meters long and deep enough to sit up in with decent compacted overhead cover to protect against artillery fire. And they were very cramped. And observation was from a small hole big enough to allow optics to see through. And you'd have a little bit of camouflage face veil over the front to stop the reflection on the optics. But as I say, the most important thing about an OP was ensure it gave you cover from viewing, cover from fire, and reduced any thermal signature. And these OPs could be four to 500 metres away from the Mexi as well, because you wanted the Mexi way back deep in a wood. Uh, and I said before, you had to dig in field telephone line that four or 500 metres back to the Mexi. And the Mexis themselves were built mainly by hand uh, initially. Later on, we were lucky enough that somebody noticed somehow that there was a small digger that initially, where they found this, it was used for digging rich people's basements in London. So this small digger could get through narrow Georgian houses, doors, and into the house in order that they could dig into basements. And that's how we sourced that. But um, the last meter was always dug behind as the digger couldn't reach. And the OPs were always dug by hand because you couldn't have a digger that far forward because you'd compromise yourself. And looking back on it now, it's amazing. Health and safety didn't exist. <laughs> we had no training. You just got on and you dug it at night. You know, you, you, you dug it 24-7. I remember sides collapsing in on people and people getting covered in spoil. Uh, we used silums, little glow sticks at the bottom to help us dig and, and keep our light signature down. And once you dug the hole, you inserted a steel frame structure. And back in the early days, you wrapped a tough material around it called FRM, which I can't remember what it stands for. 
but then you had to wrap that round like a birthday present and you wired it into place on the metal structure. Um, eventually, we got a bit of bespoke kit called an elephant cover, and that made life a lot easier. And once that elephant cover or the FRM was in place, you could backfill the Mexi with earth. And, it, and once you had all this FRM or the, the elephant cover in and you went inside the Mexi, it appeared huge. But once people started backfilling it, you had the sides bulging in. And then once you got all the stores and equipment in, like water, rations, radio batteries, all the Bergens, it was very, very cramped. How long did it take to build one of these? Well, once you deployed, um, a patrol of six could construct a Mexi working 24-7 with maybe a couple of hours snatch sleep and, and rotation in two to three days, depending on the ground. But as I say, that was working round the clock. And that was from shovel first, striking the earth, to throwing the last bit of camouflage on it. We were also issued lots of plastic explosive P4, uh, which we could use um, to blow up rocks. We didn't use it much, but PE4 makes great fuel for cooking on as it burns with a great intensity. So if we weren't blowing things up with it, we are getting bruised on with it. <laughs> but I think blowing up rocks wasn't exactly going to aid your concealment of what you were doing. Yeah, exactly. And I, and that's why I'm always amazed that we, um, that we, we were issued with it. I would like to think that they did have a decent deception plan where we would maybe deploy in, in amongst a battalion and the noise of the battalion in, in a defensive position and moving round would uh, would hide what we are doing. But then you start to think about, well, then people know where you are and if they get captured, they might give the game away for you. So yeah, it was done in a bit, the, the actual deployment itself was done in a bit of a wing and a prayer. Did you ever have the situation where some local farmer discovers you and wonders what you're up to i must have um i must have done about six of these things and we only were ever walked up upon once and that was by a uh, a local german forest meister and for for people who've never been to germany forest meisters are of, they do a lot of studying to get that position and they're very much keepers of the land and they're well respected so when this chap found us digging a massive Mexi in his forest. He wasn't best pleased. and We sat there telling him that um, we'd return it to pristine condition. And as we're having this conversation with him, there's a tree next to the side of the Mexi and the base of the side collapsed and this tree fell into the Mexi <laughs> with perfect timing. And we're looking at this forest meister and we were just speechless and he was red-faced with anger. <laughs> Wow, wow. So we've we sort of covered how the enemy observation was, was carried out and you're communicating back to the artillery that's uh, – how far away would that have been? Uh, it could be anything from initially 50 kilometres to a couple of hundred kilometres or you know, with HF you can communicate back to the UK quite easily. How was that communication encrypted? We used initially we used a radio called the PRC three twenty and then the PRC three one nine. And the benefit of three one nine was that you could remote the antenna fifty meters away from the Mexi. And what we did is when we were digging the Mexi in, we basically had a, a camouflaged uh, bit of drain pipe that came out that you could feed the 
the cable that led to the antenna into the Mexi, so it plugged into the radio. Um, so communications was was by OTP, uh, a one-time pad. And o- one-time pads can be traced back to World War II, and they were invented in World War One. and uh, SOE used them in World War Two. And this was basically a pad which contained a series of numbers that you used to encrypt the information. And then once you'd encrypted it, this information was sent by burst transmission, a device called a uh, DIMED, digital message handling device, which you connected to the radio. You, f- you encoded all your stuff into it, and then you press a button, and it sent it in a matter of you know less than a second. And again, going back to what I was saying about SIGINT, um, this really reduced the options of you being compromised by signal intelligence from the Soviets. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's exactly how the KGB some of the KGB agents in the UK were communicating was using a, a burst transmitter like that, and they were using one-time pads as well. Yeah, and it's only recently that, that, that you know, I think in the 90s that was superseded by, you know, other methods. That's fascinating. And were you able to receive orders back the other way? Was it a bi-directional communication? Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, the, the frequency management system was complicated. And I've, I've tried to remember, and if I, one of my friends who was in the troop with me listens to this, he'll probably shoot me down for being wrong. But but basically, the command post would, uh, every hour, they would use a broadcast frequency. So you deployed with these broadcast frequencies along with your OTP. So every hour in a time frame of, a I don't know, maybe five minutes, they would send out encoded frequencies because what they'd do back in the CP, they would have a frequency finder that would analyze the the air uh, to find the best frequency. And they would send them out, you'd decode it, and then you'd know which frequencies would be best to get in touch. And I think these frequencies were valid for six or eight hour windows before they changed. And again, that was another security measure. You know, it meant that um, it helped prevent that DF. And if you were caught uh, and compromised, it would give you a chance that you wouldn't be, you know, and, and you told the Soviets what the frequencies were, they would change and they wouldn't be able to compromise other operations. And the, the, the fallback we had was Morse. So, that was a very, very last resort and only used as, as if you had a high-value target. So if you couldn't communicate by burst transmission, nine times out of ten, Morse will always get through. But the drawback there is you've got a, almost a 90% chance or more of being DF'd by the enemy. Yeah, yeah, because of the length of time it would take to transmit, manually send that message. What was it like living in a Mexi, I can't imagine it would be hugely pleasant. Well, it was more comfortable than the OPs. I'll, I'll just cover a little bit about the OPs first. So basically, if you had two OPs and a Mexi, you had two men in each of the OPs and two men in the Mexis. So usually if you're the sprog of the patrol, you just come off the selection course, you can guarantee you are going into the OP. You are never going to get the luxury of the Mexi shelter. So you can imagine three three metres long, only tall enough to sit in. You had your belt kit, your weapon, a day sack, and a water jerry can. And in that OP, you would do four hours on, four hours off. And Generally speaking, they'd say, oh, you'll go in there for three or four days. But if you're in the middle of a very busy exercise, you could be in there for seven, eight, nine, ten days. 
And during that four on, four off, one person would be on rest and the other one would be logging and reporting targets. But again, if it got very busy, um, you'd have a one guy at the, at the front of the OP speaking to the other guy at the back. He would log all the targets and the guy who's supposed to be off duty would be then transmitting them through field telephone back to the Mexi. And of course, it was hard routine. You're not allowed to cook. So you're just eating cold rations and drinking cold waters. And obviously, if you're eating cold rations and drinking cold water, they've got to go somewhere at the other end of that process. So <laughs> you would normally pee into an AL-39 container, which is what used to hold army coolant for the radiators. And uh, it's probably the same size as the uh, antifreeze container that you get for your car. That was relatively easy because if you had to do the other end of things, you basically had to um, crap into cling film. And uh, luckily, army rations bung you up because that could have got very problematic. So you'd crap into cling film, wrap it all up so the smell doesn't get out, and the smell always did get out. And then you'd put that in a sandbag. And uh, if you did do a changeover, you would take out the pea container, empty it out nearby the OP, hand it back in, and you'd carry your other waste back to the Mexi. But interestingly, you know, after a few days, you didn't eat or sleep much anyway because your metabolism slows down. And being bunged up is surprisingly how long you didn't have to do something like that. And the thought of having to do something in the cling film probably made you hold on a little bit longer anyway. <laughs> well, you can't deny we don't go into the detail on this uh, <laughs> podcast. And I hope nobody was eating uh, while, we, while we went into that detail. But um, thank you for, for sharing that, Colin. Uh, no no yeah. problem. Well, you know, it's, not, it's not all glamour on the army, Ian. I've, I had no doubts whatsoever <laughs> on, on that count from the interviews that I, I've, uh, I've conducted here. Living in an OP was quite hard, but by comparison, living in the Mexi was a lot more luxurious. Um, despite the fact that it was very crowded and cramped with stores, we had a couple of stretchers rigged up from the metalwork, which you could use for sleeping. You know, you had all your rations in there, your six Bergens, all your batteries, MBC kit. Because one thing we hadn't mentioned was that once you deployed an exercise, you got into your MBC kit and you pretty much stayed in the MBC kit for the duration of the exercise. And also in there, you had um, water can. You probably had about 400 litres of water, you know, about 20 jerry cans, which are, are um, uh, 20 litres each. And sanitation in there was, again, you, you, you used to pee into a jerry can and you had a rudimentary toilet, very similar to how you had it in the OP. Um, it was extremely hot inside. Even if you sat in a T-shirt, you used to have condensation running down uh, the liner of the Mexi. And, of course, you didn't wash. The most you got was that you brushed your teeth and maybe washed your armpits and crutch with a wet wipe. So you can imagine the smell in that Mexi wasn't too good. Oh, this is getting even better, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> so when you did your changeover from the OP and you eventually found your way back to the Mexi, which was extremely hard because it was so well camouflaged, you then descended down to that ladder and the smell really hit you. And one of the delights was watching high-ranking officers, general types, who visited us to see what capability we had. And we would always invite them down into the Mexi. 
and uh, watching their faces as he descended into the bowels of hell was often a delight. <laughs> and, I mean, again, going back to the health and safety, there was no air filtration system. We had a very basic locally manufactured uh, filtration system that the local Remy had, had made up from a Land Rover filtration system. It hardly made a dent. And the only air monitoring we did was by using a candle. And if the candle started to flicker uh, or went out, you knew you had to crack open the hatch a little bit and let some oxygen in. And one time during an exercise, two of the lads nearly died. Uh, And one of the lads in the OP realized there was something wrong and had the sense and presence of mind to quickly get out the OP and go back to the Mexi. And he found two of the guys had been uh, suffering from lack of oxygen and they had to drag them out and get them out into the fresh air. And just as the wall came down, there was a massive project to make Mexis more habitable with proper air filtration, proper sanitation, proper air management, that type of thing. But the end of the Cold War uh, put paid to that. But uh, answering your question about exercises, there were huge exercises in Germany at that time. And one of them, I remember, was exercise reforger. And um, we didn't get detected on that one. Um, I remember being detected on uh, another exercise. And um, the lesson I learned from that was it was obviously a clearance patrol that a German Bundeswehr had sent out. And... uh, I thought we'd been compromised and I came bursting out the hatch, firing my weapon. And this poor German conscript fell on his backside, threw his weapon in the air and went white as we conducted our withdrawal uh, (laughs) fire manoeuvring back from him. And I realized that that young lad hadn't detected us. And the lesson I took from that was sit tight until you really know that you've been found out. Yeah. And what were your instructions if if you were detected? detected what 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 were you supposed to do well if the it's more than likely the op would be compromised and if the op was compromised it was a matter of minutes before they found the mexi because all they had to do was follow the field telephone line back to the mexi so if you're in an op you'd conduct a breakout withdrawal aggressive breakout withdrawal back to an erv and uh, you'd wait there for a designated time window and hope that the other op and the main party in the Mexi would join you. Um, and it wasn't in that case, it wasn't seen as an escape back to, to your own lines. It was seen as a continuation patrol. And uh, you'd move through designated corridors, heading towards what is known as a designated area of recovery. And you'd have your radio with you because what you did is, you know, you'd have a second radio uh, that you take away with you in order to continue your communications. And on the way back, you're expected still to observe and watch the enemy and report back on what you'd saw. And you would move it nighttime only and harbour up during the day. Were you given any specific training about escape and evasion and you know how, how to get back to your lines? Yeah, we were. We were, um, we were designated prone to capture troops. So we went down to what was called the... International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School in Vinegarden, which is staffed by special forces from the UK, from 2-2 SES, 
American Special Forces, German Special Forces, and they were your main instructors. So he spent two weeks on a survival and resistance interrogation course down there. So the first week, basically, you spent a couple of days in the classroom, and then you went out to a survival area for four or five days where you set up traps, learned to make shelters, how to skin rabbits, make fire, and, and generally live off the land. You're also taught how to make sketch maps, improvise clothing, uh, make an improvised compass and navigate by the stars, that, that sort of thing. And so after four or five days doing this, the directing staff manufactured a scenario where they simulated you were captured. Uh, so you're taken into capture, you're processed, you're stripped naked, and a doctor would examine you to make sure you hadn't smuggled anything in uh, through your back passage. So you got a finger up your back passage to make sure there's nothing in there. And some of the lads tried to defeat this by swallowing condoms with money in them. But what they didn't realize was that depending on how good your bowels were, this money might not appear till a couple of days after the course had finished. <laughs> Particularly if you've been eating army food by the sound of it as well. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> You're then given an ill-fitting Bundeswehr uniform. And the one I was given, it made me look like Jimmy Cranky. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're put into pairs and you basically spent five days on the run, uh, moving at night, harboring up during the day and going from agent contact to agent contact. And you'd go forward to the agent contact. They'd tell you where the next one was for the following day. And they might give you a bit of um, moldy cheese or a stale bit of bread. And one time I was with this German guy, one of the uh, agent contacts, and he came back very excited. And he said, they've given me a bit of steak, Colin. And I went, oh, fantastic. So we moved stealthily through the night, got to a lying up position. And I said, get the steak out then. What have we got? And he opened up and it was a piece of tripe. And <laughs> I was never more disappointed in my life. <laughs> Another test of your psychological resolve. Exactly. And being Scottish, you think I could eat anything, but even I do the lane of tripe. <laughs> well, if it's so, been sitting in somebody's bag for a day as well. <laughs> so it was quite easy to get caught because you had a hunter force out who are very, you know, very determined to get a hold of you. And you're on a sketch map and you had to navigate by obvious features like, you know, hand railing, power lines, roads, that sort of thing. So it was very easy to get caught. Uh, and if you did get caught, you underwent some unpleasantness before taking back about five kilometers where you were found and you had to start again. So towards the end of being on the run, you're then captured and you had to undergo 24 hours practical resistance to interrogation training. And 24 hours was picked because that was a time estimated that any information you had would have been of use. So basically, you are made to feel very uncomfortable and subject to a number of interviews without coffee. And you're limited to the big four at that time, which is basically all you could say was name, rank, number, date of birth, or I cannot answer that question, sir. Wow. I love that turn of phrase, an interview without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I think we we'll read between the lines on that one. Yeah, I think you could. Um Post-Gulf War, that changed to the big six because they realized that on your dog tags, you had your um, your date of birth and your religion on it. So they changed it to the big six. And I believe since then it's changed again, but I'm not, not, not up to speed on that. And one of the 
um, less nice parts about being in a special OP troop was that once you get promoted to Sergeant Patrol Commander, you then had to repeat the process again. And you had to go on the Army Combat Survival Instructor course at Hereford, run by 2-2 SES. And you can guarantee that the, the second time of going on this sort of thing, the novelty factor had well worn off. Yeah, yeah, no, I can I can imagine that. Once you're in this unit, or, or even when, when you're applying for this unit, you're under no illusion as to the likelihood of your chances of survival, are you? Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. Then um, we knew the odds weren't good, and we knew that if the Soviets had invaded, most of us would have been killed or captured. But we were highly trained and highly motivated, and very confident in our abilities, and we knew that we give a, a good account of ourselves. You know, we were young soldiering's a young person's game and part of that reason it's a young person's game is because young people believe they're indestructible <laughs> did you think that world war three was going to happen at, at some point or or did you believe that the russians would never be so crazy enough to cross that border you know i think md lived through the cold war thought it had a good chance of happening. I mean, you think back to um, the 80s when you had things like all the adverts that came on telly, the government films about how to prepare for war, and then they had that leaflet come through the door that basically said you could make a nuclear shelter out of a mattress and um, a sideboard. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you could, and, 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 and to be fair to my little thing earlier on, Ian, they did say take a big container for urine into that yeah, well, <laughs> homemade were, nuclear shelter. Know, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do believe we thought it could happen. And you look at the huge exercises they ran, uh, Lionheart, Reforger, huge amount of money spent getting, uh, in real time, American and British soldiers in as reinforcements. So, yeah, I, I think we did believe it could happen. Yeah, no, I mean, I I completely agree with you. Living through that period, there was a genuine fear that it was going to happen, either by accident or by a deliberate action. But one of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, you mentioned Bricksmiths earlier, and some of the impressions I get from from speaking to uh, people who served in Bricksmiths was the reality that they were seeing on the ground in East Germany was not the most efficient army that they were looking at there because it was conscript. There were lots of different nations in the Soviet army, so there were communication problems with language. Did you get that impression being in the British army or was it – I guess they wanted to keep you at a high level of – readiness and awareness so wanted you to think that this was going to be you know elite troops coming over the border no i think they were quite realistic in what the um they painted because not only were we doing our own recognition we went down to the lerp school and you had to do a a two-week advanced recognition course and again that was very very intense and when you were down there they had instructor i believe they had an instructor who'd had done time at Bricksmith down there too. And we were under no illusion about the poor quality of some of the uh, the conscript armies and, 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 and the capabilities. 
But I think it was Stalin once said, quantity has a quality all of its own. Um, so, yeah, they didn't have to be that good if they're in the masses they were. But interestingly, you know, going back to the logistics side and, and supplying that whole mass of vehicles and men. Um, and, you know, we look back to my own experience when I deployed an Op Granby in Gulf War One. If I'm right, I think it took two, they had to strip out two armoured divisions to make the armoured division in Iraq fully serviceable. So I have no doubt that the Soviets would have been in the same boat. You know, they would have had a lot of broken down equipment, a, a lot of Robin Peter to pay Paul. So, yeah, you might have been facing three shock army, but how much of that army was made it across the border would have probably been up for debate. Yeah. Well, what would you say was the most dangerous moment during your army career? Probably digging in those mixes, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Emptying um, the uh, no. the <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah well you had to unscrew the cap for that you you needed your respirator yeah, on full NBC <laughs> I would have thought yeah absolutely gloves and everything um, now I I did twenty two years service and deployed on multiple ops and I was fortunate to leave with my mind and body intact you know and I had friends and colleagues who were killed and wounded both physically and mentally so. Anything I went through pales into insignificance compared to the sacrifices they made. And, uh, you know, it's quite poignant that we're recording this now because as we approach approach Remembrance Day in November, I'll do what I normally do and I'll sit and reflect and remember those friends and uh, the sacrifices that they and many others over the years made to protect our country. Uh, And I hope your listeners will too. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will, Colin, and I think that's a very important point to make and i think you know obviously the the podcast that i produce here is is about the cold war but i think a lot of people think that it was a you know there were no casualties in the cold war whereas there were there were periods where the cold war went hot like korea you know malaya and some and the uh, the proxy wars in vietnam for the uh, for the americans and the Aust- australians but Lots of people were also killed in training accidents as well, so it wasn't a casualtyless period by 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 any means. But you're absolutely right about remembering the sacrifices that our troops and our fellow allies' troops have have made down the years to uh, keep us in the uh, the way of life that we're used to. Yeah, absolutely, Colin. I wanted to ask you about unconventional soldier your your podcast can you tell us what what it's about so that uh, our listeners can be uh, enticed to sign up oh thank you Ian. so very similar to your podcast in that i realized that the story of the special op troop would die out unless it was recorded so my friend kev and i decided to start a podcast on the experiences of the OP troop and to capture that story through the veterans who served in its ranks. Uh, so we start off with a chronological history from 1982 through to the present day and the batteries incarnation is uh, 473 Sphinx Special OP battery. We've got some great episodes on there because, for example, we don't just cover the Special OP troop. One of our instructors was a guy called Jimmy Morham who fought with three power in Longdon. 
And we've got a great two-parter with him about that and the lessons he learned on that and how he applied them to training us. So it's quite a mixed bag. Uh, We're on all different types of social media. If you just look for the unconventional soldier uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and if you Google unconventional soldier podcast, it'll come up as well. So thank you for giving us opportunity to give a shout out to that, Ian. Well, no, that's no problem at all. It definitely gets the Cold War conversation seal of approval. So do check out the Unconventional Soldier podcast. It's well worth a, a listen and we'll provide you with more detail than we can provide in, in this episode here. So hopefully it'll whet your appetite. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.